As we just turn now to your word, Lord, just soften our hearts, we pray. We recognize so often that when we look into your word, it is like a mirror. It reflects our true nature, uh, shows us as we really are. And Lord, we, we pray that as you reveal things in our lives that Lord, sometimes quite frankly surprise us, that you would, by your grace, just do that incredible work of sanctification, of setting us apart, of making us into the men and the women that you know we can be, Lord. We are already seen before the throne as being righteous, as being holy, Lord. Your word says that you can present us faultless. And Father, that sometimes seems so far away from our daily experience, Lord, as we are so acutely aware of our own failings. And yet, Lord, we are also aware of the greatness of our Saviour. And so, Lord, as we start this study this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we look at this man who himself was subject to failing and missing the mark, Lord, I pray that we would take comfort in seeing the way, Lord, that you transformed the life of Peter. And that, Lord, this would become a, a great example for us. And that, Lord, you would stir our hearts and that through your spirit you would continue that work which you have begun until the day of Christ Jesus. We ask these things this morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of characters in the Bible, some of them seem almost unattainable in terms of their conduct, their godliness, the lives they, they lived and so on. And I mean, Paul, what a, an amazing individual he was. You know, we read in the book of Philippians regarding Paul uh, that he was uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, he's just this incredible individual. Uh, he says concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. He says that of himself. You know, he'd just such an educated man. Um, and, and sometimes we look at people like that and, and it, it does seem almost a bar too high. Uh, and, you know, we've just gone through a study in the book of James. James, in some ways, is another kind of character just like that. James, of course, we've been looking at this individual that grew up with Jesus and yet missed that opportunity of walking with him, of talking with him uh, in those days at the home as they grew up uh, in Nazareth. You know, as he writes, you just get that sense of almost regret of those missed opportunities. And he writes to us as if to say, don't make the same mistake. You've got the chance now of walking with Jesus. And James, we've said over the last number of weeks through that study, how he writes in such an authoritative way, you know, more or less just, just chiding us and saying, don't allow the world to influence you. Don't allow your tongue to and cause issues and problems. Don't let there be strife amongst you. Don't play around with the things of the world. You know, if you, if you, if you sin, then if you are struggling with temptation, then it's coming from within and we need to change the source of flow. And that again is what we've been going through in the book of James. But now we come to Peter. Peter's a different kind of character. Um, Peter, we know, um, messed up repeatedly. Uh, Chuck Mitchell used to use the, 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 the expression talking about Peter, uh, ready, fire, aim, uh, to describe him. And I think it's kind of a good way, the way that Peter just jumped into things. He was very impulsive. Uh, and I guess that speaks of a number of, of uh, individuals, you know, ourselves, because often we don't always think through the implications of the things we do, of the things we say, and so on. Well, Peter's a great example of someone who was just like that, and yet the Lord transformed, and we'll see that as we, we go through this study. 
So uh, by way of introduction this morning, uh, Chuck Misler again just said this. He said, if we study Peter carefully, we will find that we will touch on every major doctrine in the New Testament. So we've only got five chapters in this first letter of Peter, and yet it covers a huge amount of, 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 uh, of themes from a theological perspective. Everything we really need to understand is kind of covered here one way uh, or another. Now, of course, the critics have loved to challenge the authenticity of these things. Uh, we'll do a piece when we get into Second Peter, Lord willing, uh, just showing again the the evidence that we've got that we know that these are authentic letters written by Peter himself. Of course, critics love to tell us that these must have been written in the second century, third century, or even later. Um, that Peter Pot couldn't have possibly written these things because he was a, not a skilled man; he was just a fisherman. Well. Yeah, that's true in a sense. He was a, a fisherman. He didn't have that kind of university education typically. But what we find in the book of Acts is we're told that Peter spoke with incredible authority, so much so that the Jewish leaders noticed that he was untrained and uneducated, but that he had been with Jesus. In other words, he had learned a tremendous amount by being with his rabbi, by being with his teacher, and all of that starts to come through in his ministry. So he was by no means an unlearned man. And certainly he understood scripture. Certainly capable of writing these things. As I say, when we get to Second Peter, Lord willing, we'll get there. If the Lord doesn't come back before that. And in uh, Second Peter, we'll just comment there that a fragment of Second Peter was actually found in Cave 7 in Qumran. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, obviously, a number of scrolls were found, the whole book of Isaiah, effectively, and many other things. Incredible find. And yet we know that there was documents from the New Testament that were also found. That means if they were there, they had to have been placed in the cave before AD 70, because that's when it was sealed up. That's when the, the armies of Rome besieged the area and so on. So... Uh, those documents must have been in existence. That must have been they were circulating, not just written, but circulating by that time. Uh, so we, un- we we could be absolutely certain that these documents, First Peter, Second Peter, uh, are authentic. They really were written by the the individual that we read of in Scripture. Now, Peter's original name uh, in Hebrew was Simeon. Of course, we tend to uh, translate that or transliterate that as Simon. Uh, that's how we find it translated in our our Bibles. Again, usually in the New Testament. It's, it's a Greek name of a similar sound. His father was Jonah or John. Again, very similar name, but uh, uh, certainly we see that Simon Bar Jonah, son of Jonah, is what that means. And we also find from Mark chapter 1, verse 30, that Peter was married. He was an everyday individual, just a normal kind of life. As we know, he was a fisherman. Uh, he had an occupation, had to provide for his family and so on. Um, uh, but we later find that actually his wife accompanied him during the missionary journeys that he did. Uh, now, although we don't read a great deal about his missionary journeys, there are certainly enough allusions in Scripture to the fact that he traveled to different places. And no doubt, preaching the gospel, sharing with them the good news that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was risen from the dead. And it's just interesting to know that his wife went with him. And clearly she was a partner in the ministry. We know that he was from this uh, town uh, in Israel called Bethsaida. Uh, it was largely a Greek city. 
Now, that's interesting in itself because obviously the Greeks were very much into their learning. Um, so some of those things would have been surrounding Peter as he was growing up and so on. So to, the, this suggestion that uh, he, he was a, a, a dumb fisherman doesn't really go when you start to look at all the evidence that's around it. Um, but later, we certainly know from Mark chapter 1 again that he had a home in Capernaum uh, in Galilee or the house of Nahum. That's literally what Capernaum means, uh, the house of Nahum. It was right next door to Peter's house that there was a synagogue uh, that's been discovered and uncovered and dates to the first century. Some of us, uh, some of you have been to Israel and you've actually been to this place. That is the remains of uh, what we believe, and most commentators are pretty much in agreement on this, uh, was likely to be Peter's house. Now, the, the, not, not the grand building on top. That was something that's been built since. It's like a visitor center over the top of the house. Uh, and obviously the side walls and things. Um, but that's where it was believed that Peter lived, right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then right next to this, there's a Jewish synagogue that would have been standing in Peter's day, and quite likely Peter would have been there worshipping. <clears throat> if you look at a map, uh, the map on the left there, you obviously have the, the map of Israel, you see where Jerusalem is, and then the the blue bit, at the, just, the, just above halfway, is obviously the Sea of Galilee. And then you can see right at the top end of the Sea of Galilee, is where Capernaum sits. And then on the right, you see a kind of a larger scale map of the same. So right at the top end of the, the Sea of Galilee and so on. That's just an aerial picture with the synagogue and obviously the remains of the house. You can see they're literally right next door to each other, uh, looking out across the beautiful, uh, in that particular picture, calm Sea of Galilee. It's just an amazing uh, area. It's, it's a real blessing. Uh, anybody that's had the opportunity to go there and certainly to go out on the water, uh, you can see in the background just about there, Mount Arbel uh, as well. Uh, just an incredible uh, view over the whole region from that point. Uh, but again, this is this is the whole area where Peter would have um, certainly, whether he kind of grew up in Capernaum, we, we don't know from Scripture, but certainly uh, as a man, this is where he lived. This is where his uh, livelihood was made. Uh, and you can see how close he was to the shore um, to obviously go out every day, um, providing income for his family and so on. We know that he spoke Aramaic and also with a strong North Israeli country accent. Uh, that's alluded to in Mark 14, of course, uh, when Jesus is arrested and taken to um, um, the high priest's house and uh, Peter's in the courtyard and they recognize his accent. Uh, we, we obviously recognize different people's accents from around the country. It's funny how everybody thinks that they don't have an accent um as others do um but clearly peter was identified from his location because of the way he spoke um but obviously he maintained the piety and outlook of the jewish people he understood the history that's alluded to in acts chapter 10 as meeting with cornelius and so on now peter clearly had a love for his own nation and for the history of israel uh clearly he was a a godly man and yet those things in his life have not been the priority. And Jesus comes and challenges all of those things. Um, again, uh, not trained in the law. Uh, we know for, from what we're told in scripture, um, but his literacy is not in question. And again, we mentioned that allusion Acts chapter 413. Um, but that time he spent with Jesus had transformed this man. You can't spend time with someone like Jesus with the teaching from God's word and not be transformed. The word of God changes us. And that's, of course, what we're told in Hebrews chapter four, that the word of God is living and powerful. And as Peter had been exposed to God's word, as Jesus has spoken the word of God to him, Peter's life had literally been turned around. 
Uh, again, it's likely that uh, Peter had been very affected by John the Baptist and the movement in the sense that John had started uh, this expectation that the Messiah was about to appear. Um, clearly, that was uh, the talk at the time. Uh, people were questioning whether John was indeed somebody who they should be looking to. And John, of course, was saying, no, I'm not the one. You know, there is one coming who is greater than I. But it's actually Peter's brother, Andrew, um, that we find was actually a disciple of John. Now, Peter, so Andrew seems to have been, dare I say, the more godly of the two, in as much as he was really keen to understand the prophecies, the scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. And what's interesting with Andrew is every time we really see him, he's introducing people to Jesus. What a great thing to be said. Um, you know, we, we've got people in our fellowship, um, and uh, not wish to name names, but Elia is somebody who I find a real blessing. Uh, you know, you can't be in a conversation with Elia for very long before he starts talking about God. We had the opportunity during the week to go and drop some sofas off um, um, at uh, a, a lady's house, uh, and just Elia, just just pass them a copy of, of scripture. Uh, just a great opportunity didn't need to say an awful lot but just there witnessing you know and and it's such a great thing that that we have that fire in our hearts that every opportunity that presents itself we just want to talk about jesus well andrew was one of those kind of characters andrew seemed to every opportunity got talk about jesus and it's from um andrew that peter is told of, uh, of jesus in the first place as i said already he was a fisherman this northwest uh, corner of galilee uh, and we actually find that there was a boat discovered some years ago, uh, just like the ones that would have been used in the days of Peter. Now, this doesn't really mean anything or prove anything other than just to give us a little bit of insight, um, just kind of confirming the, the general ideas and the things that were told in Scripture about the, the profession, the livelihood of Peter and so on. It's at a place called Nof uh, Gnosa. It's a little kibbutz on the edge of the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, it was actually in 1985-86 that there had been a drought and that, of course, had caused the sea level to, to drop down uh, and exposed this boat that had been buried in the mud there. It was about a 26 feet long boat uh, with about a seven foot beam uh, had been discovered. And there was various properties and minerals in the mud that have helped preserve the wood. Now, as soon as they got it out, they realized it was starting to decay very rapidly as it's brought out into the air. So they had to treat it uh, for a number of years and spray it continually. Uh, I actually got to go to Israel some years back now. And as they were uh, as I went there, they were actually spraying it. There was this constant uh, spray of chemicals just to preserve the wood so it didn't just rot away i guess very similar to that which they did uh with the mary rose some of you would have been to see the mary rose uh down in portsmouth uh, and obviously the kind of process they went through to preserve that now they used carbon 14 dating uh on this uh and it gave a date to around about 60 bc uh, or somewhere sorry, between 60 uh bc to 60 AD. so it's exactly in the window of time that the gospels occurred uh, again, just so you can see Capernaum, you can see at the top of the screen there, uh, the, where they found the boat uh, is down this place, this Um And then that is the boat, uh, what's the left of it anyway. Uh, and then in the bottom corner, you can see a typical example of what the boat would have probably looked like uh, when it was all whole. Um, so this was the kind of boat that Peter would be going out on the Sea of Galleon day, day after day, just providing income and so on. You know, it's very easy to get so caught up in the, the, the day-to-day routine to get into your um, usual pattern. We have to provide income for our family. We have to do all these kind of things. Um, but Peter, uh, we find that something was about to happen in his life that transformed the, his future from that point on. 
Well, John uh, describes the period between Christ's Galilean ministry uh, also before Jesus fully began that Galilean ministry. So there's a period of time that Jesus was obviously in the region. Of course, he grew up in Nazareth, as we know. Um, and there's a couple of things that are alluded to that John tells us about. And one of them uh, is that we have this introduction by Andrew for, for Jesus to Peter. So Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus. But this is before Peter is called. This is before Peter responds. So Peter hears about Jesus from Andrew. Now, clearly he's inquisitive, he's interested, but nothing changes in his life. He doesn't leave. You know, what a great kind of picture in a sense of so many that we get to witness to or speak to who we may share the gospel with and there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any immediate change. And sometimes it's frustrating because we think, well, what, what did they not hear? Did they not understand? And maybe Andrew felt that, uh, looking at his brother, but uh, later as Jesus comes again, Peter gets that calling, uh, from the Lord. And it's not until we get to Mark chapter 1, verse 16, and there we see that Peter's actually called to follow Jesus. But he knew about Jesus for some time before this. He'd met Jesus before this. You know, I think Oswald Chambers puts it that you know, Peter had had a, a fascination with Jesus, but that was all it was. You know, And there's a lot of people in the world that are just like that. They have a kind of fascination. Um, but later, Peter will be invited to be a Talmudim, a disciple. Now, it's easy for us to miss the importance of this and what this would have meant to the likes of Peter. There were only 12, by the way, who were actually chosen to be disciples. There were a lot of disciples, but to be Talmudim, that those uh, followers of Jesus in this context. I'll explain these things. So, uh, Christianity, of course, didn't invent the concept of discipleship. It existed in Judaism way before this. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, um, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Now, that's the idea of a disciple in Judaism, that you become like your rabbi, the one who would teach you. Now, I've said this before, I think, but um, in the, the Jewish uh, economy, when children were growing up, uh, between the ages of 5 to 12, they'd be taught to read and write using the Torah. The Torah was their guide to education. It was their textbook and that they learned all their reading and writing skills and so on. Now, for most people, most children, when they got to the age of 12, their formal education would be over and they would then go out and get involved in whatever career. Typically, the family business would normally be the way you would go. Uh, and that's what would you do. But for the especially gifted students... From the age of 13 to 15, it's referred to as Bet Midrash, there'd be this period where they would be educated a further. It's like further education for them. Now, probably Peter didn't even get that far. From what we would understand, what it seems like, Peter, by the age of 12, finished his formal education and then got into the family business. And that's what he did. That was his profession. Uh, and so for you know, uh, over a decade, clearly, you know, uh, at this point, Peter had been doing that. But for some Jewish children, by the time they got to the end of that Bet Midrash, if they'd been gifted, if they'd been allowed that opportunity, when they got to the age of 16 and above, they could actually be specifically chosen by their rabbi. Now, this only happened to a select few, very few, kind of the best of the best in a sense, that they would be chosen by their rabbi. Their rabbi would take them under their wing and would then teach them all that they knew. Now, again, it's only happened to a few. Now, get the context. Jesus comes up to Peter and says, I'm choosing you to be my disciple. I'm going to be your rabbi and I'm going to teach you. 
It kind of puts a slightly different spin on the way we often think about Jesus asking people to be their disciple, his disciple. We often think there's just a, um, you know, Jesus saying, come follow me. And, and, you know, out of curiosity, people went. But it was more than that. There was this implication that you have been handpicked, that somebody has seen something very special in you and wanted you to then come under their authority, their ministry, their teaching, uh, so that they, you would be then equipped and ready to go out at some point on your own. And that's, of course, exactly the situation with Peter. <clears throat> so as a disciple, Simon received this new name, uh, this Akifa, uh, the Aramaic. Cephas, of course, is the Hebrew. Uh, it's really meaning rock or stone. But in the New Testament, usually we get the Greek, which is Petros, or what we would refer to as Peter. So Peter has this original, his, his, his name that is, was originally known as by Simon or Simeon. And later, uh, as he's called to be a disciple, he's given this new name. What a great example of that new nature, in a sense, that should accompany all those who follow Christ. Now, again, Jesus conferred this title uh, and this name that hadn't been previously been used uh, from records and things that we have uh, at their first encounter in John 1, chapter 42. Now, that's really interesting because even before Peter is called to be a disciple, Jesus calls him by the name he knows he will be. Jesus sees the things that we don't see. He sees what we can become. He sees all the the, the potential that is in us through the grace of God for our lives to be turned around. We sometimes look at our lives and we think, oh, we're not worthy. We're not good enough. We can't do whatever. When Jesus sees the end from the beginning, he is God. He's outside of time. And it's interesting that at that first encounter, even before Peter's called into ministry, Jesus calls him by the new name that he'll become known by. We read in Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am? Or so, so that I, the son of man, am? Now, this is sometime later in the ministry. Peter is now a follower, a, a Talmudim, a disciple of Jesus by this point. This is up in Caesarea Philippi. It was typically a place where the Romans would uh, have their uh, holiday um, resorts and so on. A lot of iniquity, iniquity and sin uh, and so on in this place. And it's there with all this uh, worldliness around them that Jesus then poses the question to all the disciples, not just to, to Peter, and he asks the question. And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Obviously, John had been killed by this point, so some were saying that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there was obviously lots of talk about who Jesus was. Was he somebody brought back to life? And he said unto them, but who say ye that I am? You know, this is probably the most important question in life. The question, who do you say Jesus is? Every individual, one day, will have to answer that question. And the sooner we answer it, the better. Because if we answer it this side of our moving into eternity before we die, and we answer that and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if we put our faith and trust in him, we are promised salvation. One day, everybody will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sadly, for some people, once they pass that line, when they step out of this realm, out of this world, into eternity, if they haven't realized, if they haven't recognized and made that declaration by that point, sadly, they will spend an eternity separated from God. And that's the harsh reality. 
the scripture reveals, because God has given us this day. Today is the day of salvation. People need to respond and repent. This is why for us as believers, we should never be complacent. We should never uh, miss an opportunity. We should be like Andrews and want to share our faith with others. It doesn't matter if they get upset with us. It doesn't matter if they don't like it. We need to share the gospel. We need to talk to them about Jesus because if we do, the Holy Spirit can work on those things that we plant, the things we say, and those seeds can bring forth fruit. So we just need to be bold enough to share the gospel. You know, and, and so often people may appear to be rejecting or, or even verbally tell us they're rejecting the things we're saying. And yet we know the power of words. Scripture has told us, James, if you remember, told us the power of words. You know, it just even letting our yes be yes and our no be no, echoing the words that Jesus has said. Words are very powerful. You know, and the things that we say to others really can take a uh, or, or take, take deep root in their hearts. So but anyway, this question then um so, Peter, so Jesus uh, says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And now Peter steps to the fore. Now, again, it's not that the other disciples were unable to answer, but Peter typically just jumps straight in. And Simon Peter, and I notice this, that's the old man and the new man. This this kind of character that's kind of working out just who he is now. Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, Flesh for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And notice the choice of names and words that Jesus uses. First, he refers to him as Simon Bar Jonah. He says, "You know, blessed are thou, Simon Bar Jonah, the, the old man, the old life, the one that you have been." But then he goes on to talk about what he will be. He says, "And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is a verse that's had much abuse. Um, let me just quickly mention before we go on the gates of hell. Um, the gates throughout scripture, uh, and typically we see numerous examples in the Old Testament. The gates refer to the council. The, in, in Job's day, the, the city council met at the gates. Uh, we find in the book of Ruth that the council of the town, the town leadership, met at the gates of the city so it's not talking about physical gates or anything like that it's simply saying that the councils of hell will not prevail against the church whatever hell thinks up desires intends to do it will not prosper against the church that jesus is establishing okay so that's the implication now let's get back to the text he says i said to thee that thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church and let's just carry on and then we'll come and break it down a bit more. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this, of course, has led to much abuse, particularly from the, within the Catholic Church. Uh, and we have this uh, strange concept that when people die, if they go to heaven, they're going to be met at the pearly gates by St. Peter. Now, there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that we will be met at the pearly gates by St. Peter. In fact, it's a complete misunderstanding. The pearly gates won't actually uh, be seen until the new Jerusalem. Okay, that will be after the millennial reign of Christ. That will be after this earth that everything is done away with. Those who die, who do go to heaven, we'd have no reason to, to believe from Scripture that they will see the pearly gates yet. Okay, so the pearly gates do come into it. There will be gates made of pearl, um, but that won't be until the new Jerusalem. 
And as for Peter being there to, to greet you, uh, well, once again, there is no scriptural basis. The reason that idea got uh, foisted upon uh, our minds and tradition and so on was because of the idea that Peter, it seems to say, or those who argue this point tell us that it's saying that Peter was being given the keys to the kingdom. Therefore, if he's got the keys, he's going to open the doors and he's going to control whoever goes in and goes out and so on. So that was the idea and the mindset. But then we read on, then charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, uh, if you've been diligent and we've studied this many times, the reason that he was to tell no man, the reason that they were disciples were told, don't say anything yet, was because it wasn't Jesus' time to be revealed. That doesn't come until John chapter 12, as Jesus is about to ride into the next day, rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the very day Daniel prophesied that Jesus will present himself as the Messiah. That's the only day that Jesus allows people to acknowledge who he is, because that was the specific day that had been prophesied. Uh, and we read actually here, a really big, big moment here in Matthew's gospel, from that time forth. Now, this is where everything changes in Jesus' ministry, and he now starts to head to Jerusalem. We read, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. It's all laid out, all clear. You know, people that have a problem with the resurrection uh, need to understand that Jesus himself spoke continually of the fact that he would be killed, but that he would rise from the dead. So this isn't just something that the disciples concocted. The disciples didn't even get it until afterwards. But Jesus himself said this was going to happen, prophesying and uh, promising what he was going to do. Um, so this, this marks this big moment of change in Jesus' ministry. But again, getting back on, on track here, the, the, the real input here is the question that Peter's asked. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. What a statement for Peter to deal with. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, once again, Jesus already highlighted that Peter at this point is Simon Peter. He's Simon Bar-Jonah. He's the old nature, the old man. And Peter's speaking with that natural mind, with that natural understanding, and saying to Jesus, Jesus, no, no, don't go through this. Of course, Jesus had come to do the will of his father. This was the reason Jesus had come. And Satan, working through Peter's words here, was implying to Jesus, oh, no, don't go through this. You know, That's not the right thing. Don't go and die. But of course, that's why Jesus had come. And so Jesus rebukes the spirit behind the words that Peter speaks. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, in other words, if any man is going to be a Talmudim, truly be my follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And a challenge that goes out to each one of us today. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You remember Peter's listening to these things. The challenge to Peter is, what about your life, Peter? How are you living? What is it that you're looking to gain? You know, are you looking just to have a successful family business? What is it that's really important to you? What do you want to accomplish? You know, do you want to gain the whole world, but you're risking losing your soul? Or is this something that's more important that you've not really thought through? And so on. And then, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then shall reward every man according to his works. Jesus speaking of the fact that this temporal world that we live in now is just a shadow land. Again, that expression from C.S. Lewis, but it's so apt. 
Jesus highlighting the real reality is all that is to come, is the heavenly realms, is that which God uh, is working, the kingdom of God and so on, that we're to seek first. Very, very, I say unto you, there should be some standing here which will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, of course, speaking really from the time of the resurrection, uh, the building of the church and so on, all that Jesus uh, was to accomplish and uh, to lay the foundation of. Now, this is the first mention of the church that we have in Scripture specifically. But this is really the context of what Jesus says. And this is the bit that's important and pertinent to the study here. Jesus says, thou art a little stone, Peter, but upon this big rock, i.e. himself, Jesus I will build my church. That's what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say that the church is going to be built upon Peter. This is the misunderstanding that has led to this Catholic fallacy of Peter being the first pope and the head of the church and so on. The word in the Greek Petros that's used of Peter is a little stone. In contrast to that, the word that Jesus uses of himself is Petra. A large rock. You're probably familiar with the rock city of Petra. We were talking about it in our study on Isaiah on uh, Thursday evening. And again, the, it's a definite article that is used before Petra, uh, but no article used before Petros. So P- Peter is just as a little stone, but Jesus is the rock. Okay. Now notice what is said here that Jesus says, I will build. Okay, so Jesus, even in this context, people that have trouble with this just need to look at the words. Jesus doesn't say that Peter is going to build the church. Jesus says, I will build the church. And notice Jesus says, I will build the church. Future tense from this point, but it's a work of Christ. It's not a work of Peter. It's not a work of the disciples. It's not a church growth program, however wonderful those things may seem to be. Yeah, many churches have a five-year plan and all these kind of things. Well, great, but that's not what Scripture says we should be doing. It's the Lord that adds to the number such as should be saved. What we need to be is obedient to the will of the Father. So what is the foundation of the church? Is it the confession of Peter? Is it him acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ? No, it's not. Is it Peter himself? Is Peter the foundation that the church would be built upon? No. It's Christ. Jesus himself very clearly is the foundation of the church. And actually, you only need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to actually see there that Paul tells us that no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, Jesus himself. And of course, if you do a study of scripture, you'll find that repeatedly this idea of the rock or a rock is used of Jesus. Throughout Psalms, we see references to this. Uh, throughout the Torah, there's numerous references to Jesus being the rock. And of course, we have it absolutely clarified for us in 1 Corinthians 10, that Jesus is that rock that had gone before them in the wilderness and so on. Uh, as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, again, speaking of the foundation being Jesus and so on, and Ephesians 2 as well. Making very clear that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Not Peter, not any man, not any program that man can develop or come up with. Okay. John's usual designation in the Gospels is Simon Peter. Uh, and it kind of presents this, this dichotomy uh, that we see with this individual. Mark calls him Simon up until chapter 3, verse 16, and then Peter almost invariably thereafter. Uh, and there's nothing to suggest the, that the solemn words of Matthew 16, 18 represent the first bestowal of the name. In other words, that, that Jesus had already used this name 
prior to that point, as we've already mentioned earlier. Uh, this is just a reiteration and helping Peter to understand the situation. Again, said uh, the whole thing has been kind of unclear through history and tradition. Peter actually, in these words in this letter we're going to look at, helps to unpack these things. Now, just again, just think about the disciples. It's helpful to understand that we have the followers of Jesus. There was a whole load of people, a multitude that had followed after Jesus. Okay, they were in a sense the general public. They followed him from place to place. They were curious. They were fascinated. They they loved to see the miracles. At one point, with the feeding of the five thousand, they wanted to take him and make him their king. Of course, he doesn't allow that. It wasn't the right time. But after Matthew twelve, we find that Jesus only speaks to the general public in parables. Okay, but then we have a group of the seventy that Jesus had chosen and sent them out on missionary errands to to go and proclaim that the kingdom was coming and so on. And then we have the twelve, and of course the twelve are those that have been handpicked and chosen by Jesus. He was going to be their rabbi and teach them. But then within the twelve, there is this like this inner circle. Now we see, of course. Uh, the situation with Jairus' daughter, these same three individuals there, uh, it's Peter, uh, James and John. Um, uh, Jairus' daughter, the Transfiguration, Gethsemane, the Olivet Discourse. Again, these three individuals are there every time. Peter was always one of the first disciples called, uh, or sorry, he was one of the first disciples called, and he always stands first in the list of disciples. Not that he was the most important, but clearly he does seem to take uh, the lead. He was also one of the three, again, as I just said, that form that, that kind of circle around Jesus. And those scriptures you can look at reference if you want to. Um, his impulsive devotion is frequently portrayed. We mentioned this at the start. And, and he was typically very impulsive. And when you think of the incident where he chopped off the high priest's ear, great enthusiasm. Uh, not understanding God's plan was the problem. Uh, and of course, he acts as a spokesman of the Twelve. Uh, we see that through the Gospels on a number of occasions. Uh, the crisis at Caesarea Philippi, which we just mentioned a moment ago, Peter's the representative of the whole group. He's the one that speaks up and, sp- and answers the question. Maybe the others were, you know, what it's like in a classroom environment. Nobody wants to be the one to put their hand up and give an answer. Well, Peter didn't seem to worry about that. Uh, and the question is directed to all of them, of course. Uh, and they're all in, kind of included in that look you can just imagine Jesus giving that accompanies that subsequent reprimand. Uh, and so we then see that the transfiguration, which immediately follows on from that situation in Caesarea Philippi, is related directly to this. As the disciples, those three that get to go up the mountain with Jesus, get to see Jesus transfigured. They see Jesus in his glory. They recognize who he is. And of course, that experience makes a lasting impression on Peter, because we're going to see both in First Peter and in Second Peter that Peter makes reference to that transfiguration, a really big kind of watershed moment for Peter. Of course, the denials of Peter are mentioned uh, in uh, John 18 and Matthew 26. And we have the situation that he seems to lose his discipleship. Now, this is quite an interesting thing. If we look at Mark 16, and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. This is obviously the morning of the resurrection. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen, he's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, and notice what they're told. Tell his disciples and Peter. Okay, this is Mary and the women, when they arrive at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection, Tell his disciples and Peter. Peter is separated out from amongst the disciples. And they tell him that he goes before you into Galilee and there you shall see him as he said unto you. An interesting situation uh, uh, occurs here because Chuck Misler made the comment. He says discipleship can be lost. 
Salvation cannot. Discipleship depends upon the faithfulness of the believer. Again, just think of what I said, that Jesus had called Peter to be this disciple, this follower, this this pupil of his master. And effectively, Peter, when he's in that courtyard, when he's being quizzed as to whether he knows Jesus, he's warming his hands by the fire and so on. And they ask, he says, I don't know him. I, I'm not one of his. And effectively, he, he dis, disowns uh, Jesus at that point and, and, and removes himself from that position of being a disciple. Later, in John 21, the situation is remedied by Jesus' grace. And we read this. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas. Now notice again the expression he uses. He starts by using uh, that name, the, 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 the earthly, the, the natural man in a sense. Lovest thou me more than these? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said unto him again, The second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou was young, thou girdest thyself and walkest where thou wouldn't. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spoke he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. And this seems to be the moment that Peter is reinstated. Again, as I said, Jesus starts by using his natural name. And the first question is, Peter, do you agape me? That's the unconditional love. That's the love that God has for us. It's the love that Christ showed by going to the cross. And the question to Peter is, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter says, Lord, you know, I'm very fond of you. That brotherly love, that phileo is from, from, from where we get um, uh, Philadelphia, that name, that means brotherly love and so on. Okay, so do you love me unconditionally? Peter's not able to answer yes to that question because he knows his own heart and he knows Jesus can see right through him. He says, Lord, I am really fond of you. And then Jesus says again, Peter, son of Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter again responds in the same way. Lord, I am really, really fond of you. Peter's holding back. He recognizes that he's not sure he can he can make this statement. And third time, Jesus brings it down to Peter's level. Peter, are you very fond of me? And yeah, Jesus uh, and, and Peter does respond in the same way. Yes, Lord, I am really fond. But there's this call here for Peter to come into a deeper walk, a deeper relationship. You know, that question could go to every one of us this morning. You know, do you as individuals, do I agape Jesus? Do we love him unconditionally or are you holding something back? Now, we'll go on and see with Peter that life is yet to be transformed further from this moment. An incredible transformation takes place. You know, you consider the the gospel rhetoric of Peter, the things he says, you know, with the the way that he then speaks when we get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and 3 particularly, those real skillful sermons that he puts together. A, A totally different man by the time he gets there. Somebody who by this point... I genuinely believe did agape Jesus, you know, and we need to go through that stage of being challenged. Is Jesus number one in your life? Do you really love him unconditionally or are there other things you're still holding on to, still wrestling with? 
Now, it's interesting in the, in the book of Acts, and this is just for those of you who want to do a little bit further study, there's some interesting parallels between this letter, for Peter's first letter, um, and the sermons that we find recorded in the book of Acts. You know, they are quite significant. Uh, you see the comparisons in 1 Peter one twenty with Acts 2.23, uh, 1 Peter 4.5 with Acts 10.42. It's worth looking up and just seeing the, the comparisons. Uh, and another, probably more striking example, is the similarity between 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 and Acts 4, 10 to 11. So it's worth just having a look, look at those. You know, because in each passage, Psalm 118, 22 is quoted and applied to Jesus. Now, Jesus himself used this of himself. And Peter obviously builds on that. Uh, you reference those Matthew 21, 42 and so on. Just an interesting uh, thought as to, to, to the, the, the parallels between uh, Peter that we see in the book of Acts and, of course, in this letter. Well, again, Peter is especially marked out uh, at the message of the resurrection. We saw that earlier uh, and personally receives a visit from the risen Lord. Now, this is interesting because it makes James and Peter quite special because James, who we just finished studying and Peter both had a personal visit from Jesus after the resurrection. James, of course, wasn't a believer. James utterly transforms his life. James becomes so intent on telling everybody, you must live for Jesus Christ. There must be no compromise. Peter, because James recognizes of all the opportunities missed out. Peter, on the other hand, in some senses, is, is I mean, James, sorry, let me just, just clarify what I'm trying to say here. James is like those who become believers who have had a life in the world. Sudden transformation, very zealous now, wants to tell everybody, and he just, just regrets that lost opportunity of the past. Peter is a little bit like those that have grown up in a Christian environment, with Christian family, maybe with Christian parents, that come to know the Lord, but maybe have never come to that either decision point themselves, or has never really hit them, that this is something that they must work out with fear and trembling themselves. Yeah, and so Peter comes you know, to this place, by seeing the risen Jesus, of recognizing that his religious heritage was valuable, that he'd learned so much, but now he has to live the life. It's no good relying on the history. It's no good relying on the tradition. Jesus is calling both those who, who have not known him before and those that have walked with him to that life of complete surrender and obedience. There's an interesting parallel with those two individuals. And as we've just studied James, we see the, the, the contrast, quite, uh, contrast quite sharply. Well, we go on and we find that Peter's ministry was to the circumcised. Okay, so that's to the Jews. In Galatians, which we've been studying, Galatians 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, but contrawise, Paul speaking, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, that's the Gentiles, was committed to me, that's to Paul, and the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. That's to the gospel to the Jews. So we have these two great examples of great characters in the New Testament. Paul, who's given the, the mission to go and preach the gospel to the Gentile world, all the non-Jews. And then, uh, sorry, uh, yes, and Paul, Paul is to do that. And then Peter is given the, the mandate to go and preach to the Jews. Okay, and Paul just says, he that wrote effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So the Lord uses these two characters in different areas. We don't all get to, to be used of the Lord in the same way. The Lord will give us different gifts. He'll call us to different things. We're all to, to evangelize and to be salt and light in this world. And God will use us in different ways and different means, uh, as we see with these two individuals. 
And we start with a win. James, this is uh, Galatians 2.9, wins James, Cephas, again, uh, Peter, the rock, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace was given unto me. They gave me to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So Peter wasn't alone. Okay, James, as we've already been talking about in recent studies, was also, and John, also going to the Jews, preaching to uh, the nation of Israel. The gospel, of course, went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So every biblical doctrine, as we mentioned at the start, uh, we really see in these letters and it exemplified in the life of Peter. Again, these two natures we refer to, the two births, the old Simon and the new Peter. The old man and the new man, kind of uh, referenced and echoed there. And of course, the Christian life, you know, more than just mere salvation and discipleship, more than just a carnal life. You know, we we see this this contrast. And this is why, in some sense, it's like David. David's a great character to study because he was flawed. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. You know, Peter's very similar. Peter was indeed flawed. But he was a man after God's own heart. How can a man like Peter be used of God? Well, because his heart was for God. His heart was in the right place. He just had to do a lot of learning and get to that place where he would walk in obedience with his Savior. And for many of us, it's the same experience. You know, the real problem comes when our heart is not for the things of God. You know, the problem is not stumbling and falling. The problem is having a heart that doesn't care about stumbling and falling. You know, we should have the same attitude towards sin that God does. And if we sin, it should cut us. It should hurt us. It should be painful to us because it's painful to God. Again, we see this kind of spiritual life, eternal life and life abundant uh, as being that contrast to the, the natural way of things. You know, again, the inconsistencies, is apparent con- uh, contradictions, you know, all, all his life he remained both Simon and Peter. And the truth is that we are, as individuals, going through this process, just like Peter, of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's not a switch that is thrown and suddenly we are living this Christian life without any concern for the things of the world, without any influence of worldly things. James, as we said already, makes it very clear there must be no compromise. But we see within this letter, we see within Peter's life, a life of somebody who did make mistakes but never gave up, never stopped seeking to be obedient. And that is a great uh, reminder for us of the way that we should be. Before Pentecost, this is now looking at the book of Acts uh, and what we see of Peter. You know, Peter is the one that takes the lead in the, the community, in the, the early church. He's the principal preacher, uh, the spokesman before the Jewish authorities and numerous examples of that. You know, presiding in administration of discipline and so on. We see that in the situation with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You know, and it's through the church as a whole, uh, sorry, though the church as a whole made a deep impression on the community, it's Peter in particular that we see supernatural powers attributed to. And particularly in Acts chapter 5, that situation where Peter and John go up to the temple Okay, uh, we see that, that example of the, the man that's healed. Again, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira being struck down dead and so on. So Peter is the one that we see taking the lead in these things. And of course, in Samaria, the church's first mission field is the same leadership that's exercised there. 
But significantly, also, he's the first apostle to be associated with the Gentile mission. Uh, uh, by an unmistakably providential means. Now, I think this is one of the most incredible, wonderful portions of Scripture. And I've shared this before, but I will just mention it again. You have this great situation in Acts 10, where Peter's up on the top of his roof. He sees a sheet lowered down. He's kind of daydreaming at the time, or just nodded off. You know what it's like. You know, there's nice hot afternoons. You sit in the garden and you just fall asleep. Or Peter on top of the house, and the sheet's lowered, and there's all sorts of food on there that is unclean for Jews to eat. And he hears a voice saying, Peter, arise, kill, eat. And Peter's kind of horrified. He's like, well, Lord, we, we can't eat this stuff. And it happens three times. And the Lord says to Peter, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And Peter's like, uh, I don't get it. I don't understand it. At which point there's a knock on the door. Peter goes downstairs and there's some guys that have just come down from a man called Cornelius. who's a, a Roman centurion. He's been very kind toward the church and uh, or to the, to the Jew, Jew, Jewish community. And they say, uh, is there somebody called Peter here? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, we've come to take you back to, to see Cornelius. He, he needs to see you. And so Peter's like, okay, well, I'll get my bits and off we go. Peter, this boy still doesn't understand the vision. Gets to Cornelius. Uh, and I just, uh, you can just picture the scene. Cornelius is, comes out into his courtyard. All the people gather around Cornelius, a very important individual. Peter comes into the courtyard. They're standing there together. And Cornelius looks at Peter with that kind of expectation of, Okay, you're here. Please speak. Peter looks at Cornelius with that. Okay, you've called for me. What do you want me to say? Uh, or what do you want to ask me? Uh, and this is this almost standoff. You can imagine this embarrassed silence. Peter doesn't know why he's there. Cornelius doesn't know why he's come. All the Cornelius knows is that he's been told to send for him. And suddenly the penny drops and Peter suddenly gets the meaning of the sheets. It's that God is saying that the gospel can now go to the Gentiles. And it's a light bulb moment for Peter that just transforms the the furtherance of the gospel from that point. Peter then, of course, comes back and makes it very clear um, to the rest of the church that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but actually it's for the Gentiles too. Now, of course, Peter does have his ministry to the Jews, but of course he's very clear on the fact that the gospel is also to go to the Gentiles. Now, that brings criticism upon him, of course, from the Jewish community. The, the, Jew, the Gentiles were seen as being just fueled for the fires of hell. But at Antioch, we see a problem develop. Uh, we see the, there was a pagan element that was involved there. There was the sharing of, of food, these tables, and so on. And the, the Gentiles and the Jews started to kind of separating from each other, particularly because of the Jewish uh, opposition that was there. Uh, and again, it's Paul that steps in and actually criticizes Peter for not actually practicing what he's preaching. Paul, Paul understood that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. He knew that Peter knew that. It wasn't that they were on a different page. It wasn't they contradict each other in their theology. But Peter's practice was called into question by Paul because he wasn't doing what he knew was right because he was concerned about those around him. Another example of how just human he was in a sense how much like us you know sometimes shying away from that which he knows to be true for fear of criticism paul's gospel and peter's were the same okay they they you know had slightly different expressions but they actually uh said the same thing there is no contradiction and so on and peter's speeches in acts and mark's gospel uh so on and first peter have got the same theology of the cross uh, rooted in the concept of Christ as the suffering servant. And it's interesting, that again, just to mention, we looked at Mark's gospel uh, a year or so ago, we studied through it, that Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. So if you want to understand a bit about Peter, 
You need to read Mark's gospel. Mark, John Mark, ends up writing down the things that Peter said. And my take on this is that as Mark gets to know Peter, if you remember, he goes out with Paul and then they separate and, and, and uh, Paul and Barnabas and Mark leaves halfway through the journey. And then the second time they have opportunity, Barnabas wants to take Mark and, and Paul says, no, you can't. And there's this division and so on. But after that, Mark goes and befriends Peter and sits at his feet effectively. And you can imagine those conversations as Mark saying to Peter, you know, tell me about Jesus. Tell me what it was like to walk with him and talk with him. And Peter just, just shouting, revealing all the things that God had, had done, what Jesus had done, what he'd seen, the conversations they'd had. And you can imagine halfway through the first conversation, Mark going, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me, let me go and get, get going to write with. And starting to write down all the things. And it becomes Mark's gospel. Okay, which really is just Peter's testimony, Peter's account of all that happened. And Mark, we, we praise God, is the one that records it for us. So we have that record. But again, Mark's gospel presents Jesus as the suffering servant, uh, just the way that Peter typically presents him. <clears throat> and again, he was ready with a right hand of fellowship to recon, uh, recognizing his mission to Jews and Paul's to the Gentiles as part of the same ministry. So there is no conflict between uh, Paul and between Peter, as some would try and suggest. And it's later Acts 15, there's this council uh, where the debate about Gentiles is really brought up. And Peter and Paul are very clear as to the situation. And Peter actually is on record as the first to urge the full acceptance of the Gentiles on the basis of faith alone. Now, Peter's career after the death of Stephen is hard to trace. We don't have a lot of detail in Scripture, um, but there are clear references, references to him being Joppa, as we know. That's uh, what we um, alluded to in Acts 10 a moment ago when he knocked on the door. Um, Caesarea, of course, and elsewhere that suggest he undertook missionary work in Israel. And, of course, we know because he took his wife with him that he must have gone to certain places. That's, that's clear as well. Uh, but James then then assumes the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. Again, we've looked at that in our recent studies. <clears throat> we find that eventually he was imprisoned in Jerusalem uh, and on a miraculous escape, he left for another place. I'm not told specifically where. We know that he went to Antioch, certainly at some point in ministry, uh, and he may have gone to Corinth, uh, though probably not for long from, from what we understand. He's closely associated with the Christians in North Asia Minor, so that's kind of Galatian area, but the northern part. Uh, and possibly Paul's pro prohibition to enter Bithynia was due to the fact that Peter was already working in that area. Okay, so these are just little illusions we have, but just give us some insight of the, the continued work and ministry of Peter. The book of Acts actually is quite interesting if you look at it. The first half of the book of Acts is all about Peter, really. He's the key character. The second part of the book of Acts is all about Paul. It's very interesting to do a look at the parallels. Maybe next week we'll have a, a quick look at that. Uh, it's just interesting to see the ministries and the things they did. Uh, a lot of similarities. Okay, so after the time of the book of Acts, uh, we find that Peter's residence uh, in Rome had been disputed, or is, is, is disputed. Some people don't say he went to Rome at all, um, because there's not a lot of evidence and proof for that. Of course, the Catholic Church would love to tell us that Peter went to Rome and became the first pope. That is, of course, so far away from anything that Scripture reveals. It's just um, their own uh, interpretation based upon the things that we were saying earlier. Um, but there are scholars that believe that first Peter was actually written from Rome. Uh, others think that it was actually written from Babylon. Now, there was a Jewish community in Babylon. That may well be the case. Uh, again, the book shows signs of being written just before 
or during Nero's persecution. Uh, and uh, an extra biblical account, First Clement chapter 5, implies that just like Paul, that Peter died under the hand of Nero because of that persecution that was breaking out at the time. The Christians were blamed, of course, for the big fire in Rome at that time uh, during Nero's reign and uh, so on. Now, the story in the Acts of Peter, okay, now this is again not a biblical work, uh, but an extra biblical work, uh, it implies that he was crucified upside down. And the account goes that we, they went to crucify him and he made the comment that I'm not worthy to be killed in the same way that my Lord was killed. And so thinking it'd be quite funny, the Romans turn him upside down and crucify him upside down. Um, we don't have any real authoritative uh, proof for that, but certainly from historical inference, it seems as if it could be likely to be the case. So the earliest statement about the origin of uh, this uh, gospel is that is given by Mark. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. The early statement about the origin of Mark's gospel uh, is what we find uh, Eusebius uh, and Arrhenius, and they both attribute it to the work of Peter. So as I said earlier, uh, Mark's gospel seems to be Peter's account. Mark writes it, but it's really Peter's voice that we have there, as we said earlier. Uh, and we look at the, the incidents, the choice of the matter, the manner of treatment, all really tell of the, the experience that Peter had had. Okay, we're not going to get into the, the text, unfortunately, um, but just to give you kind of a, 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 a heads up of where we're going, the, the first chapter and into the second chapter the, really opens by looking at Christian suffering and conduct in the light of full salvation. Okay, so Peter writes as somebody who gets it. He understands the struggling. He understands persecution. He understands what it's like to fail. And he writes with real compassion as somebody that wants to encourage us to a deeper walk. And the challenge is, what is your conduct like? Our, what uh, James uses that word conversational. We have it translated as conversation, our lifestyle. You know, we have been saved. It's complete. Okay, so given all of that, how are we living? And, and Peter ties his ideas together. From verse 9 of chapter 2 to chapter 4, verse 19, it's really the, the believer's life in light of sevenfold position and we'll go into that we'll look at the seven things uh that peter lists for us there okay and that how our life should be showing the light of christ and how we should be representing him by the way we live and then really tailing out chapter 5 from verse 1 to 14 to bring us to the end it's really christian service in light of the coming chief shepherd there's a lot of similarities to the things that james writes but the tone is very different James is very, you know, you must do this, you have to do this, this is the way you live, and he's absolutely right to tell us in that way, okay, by being very authoritative, saying that there, there must be no compromise. But Peter writes in a slightly different way. Peter writes from that very kind of, you know, the, the same idea, but encouraging us, trying to lift us up. James almost is going ahead of us and dragging us forward, saying, come on, this is the way. Peter almost coming behind us and saying, come on. This is the way you must live. Let's walk together. Uh, and, and we have example, of course, in Peter's life of somebody that knows the struggle. So I think this is going to be a study we're going to enjoy. It follows on so well from James. Of course, the Holy Spirit has put it in Scripture in, in this way for us. I think there's going to be a lot of lessons we're going to learn. So read ahead. Next week, we're going to jump into chapter 1. 
read through the chapter whether we'll make the whole chapter i don't know we'll see how the lord leads us uh there's a lot to look at a lot to go through um but there's many many things i think will be challenging and a blessing as we continue to walk with our lord let's bow our hearts shall we father we just thank you for this time this morning lord just to be brought face to face with the the reminder that lord there is that old nature that old life but lord we see that you who called us called us lord in the the light of what you know we can be in you what we can be with those lives that are transformed lord with our minds renewed with a clean heart lord how you can change forever the way we live that you can make us holy and acceptable and that we can stand before our father one day in heaven lord without fault you can present us blameless and so lord we thank you for these things thank you that we have such a great example lord such a real example lord we get to see peter's failures but lord we also get to see his passion his love for you and lord we pray that we would truly be able to say if not this morning by the end of the time of this study lord that we would truly be able to say lord that we agape you that we love you unconditionally that there is nothing that we're holding back we ask these things in jesus name amen